Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. Today we're going to be discussing uh, broadly the idea that companies are looking to bring in uh, teenagers and uh, children, in some cases, into the workforce earlier and earlier. And in this first segment, we're going to talk about their attempts to loosen child labor restrictions that we've seen in recent months. And as we move on into the episode, we'll talk about the ways in which they've uh, weaseled their ways into schools and, frankly, been openly welcomed into schools in most cases. Um, so I, I guess the impetus for this episode, the thing that first started us thinking on the subject, was a uh, quote by New Rochester Mayor Malik Evans. Um, in one of his first speeches as mayor, he said, uh, quote, let today be the day that we provide jobs for any youth that wants one, Evans said. This will be one of our best violence reduction strategies. Economic opportunity and public safety are linked, and we must say so. And all of that is more or less correct that, you know, hey, if you don't have economic opportunity, you're more likely to turn to crime. This is understood, you know, basic point by now. But the, the phrasing of it, the idea that, uh, you know, we're going to have, you know, high schoolers, teenagers entering the workforce, you know, and a job will be there for anybody who wants one. Something about that didn't sit right with me, at least. It, uh, no, can you maybe capture the feeling in more words than I can put to it? So what you've got here is, as as we've noted on Punching Out multiple times over the past few months, right, the intentional labor shortage that has been enforced by capital, by employers over the past few, really over most of this year, regardless of economic conditions or, you know, I'd say damage to bottom lines, but for the most part, there hasn't really been that much. Uh, all of that, regardless of anything that has happened, they have tried to remedy this labor shortage by doing everything but paying workers better because that sets a precedent. So one of the latest things they have decided to do is... And I got to say, Malik Evans's way of addressing this as or couching it in terms that, again, like you said, economic opportunity and public safety, we understand that part of public safety policy has to be improving material conditions. That means good jobs. That means health care. That means education and all of that. So, of course, a city mayor finds a way to turn that into essentially doing an end run around some of the few laws we have left in this country when it comes to labor, in this case, child labor laws. And it's very skeevy, the level to which employers and with the help of the federal, state, and local governments are going out of their way to remedy a supposed labor shortage by just having kids work. Uh -huh. it, this is, I, I have to point out as senior teen correspondent... <laughs> I have to point out that the U.S., it's not that children don't work in other countries. 
but the U.S. is one of the few countries where I think children working is treated as something that's primarily about character building. Uh. And, and, and to be fair, that's not uniformly the case. Not every child works because their parents want them to, you know, know the, the value of a hard-earned dollar or whatnot. In plenty of places around the world, that's not a cultural expectation. And I guess where I'm going with this is that they are taking advantage of that cultural expectation to remedy the lack of adult workers whom have to be paid certain amounts and have to be treated a certain way by instead introducing more children and more teenagers. And really, as I keep being told by a lot of people who are weirdly quiet on these developments and the stuff that we're going to talk about later, those are the same thing. Uh You know, we've agreed that we're covering children and teenagers under one umbrella, but weirdly enough, you wouldn't tend to send your kid to be an, uh, if if you've got an eight-year-old child, you're not going to send them to be an overnight waiter. Probably not, no. Or things like that. So it, it's a lot of this is very strange because you've got a lot of different sectors of people whose interests should be textually at odds with one another, but they're not because we live in a society that doesn't make sense and it's fundamentally unserious. What else is new? Speaking of being fundamentally unserious, uh, I'm sure you've seen these stories pop up. Uh, it's happened in a few places now. The... Um, sort of inspirational post about uh, how when one restaurant was short-staffed, these local retirees stepped up to take up shifts and, you know, fill the gaps. Um, And this is sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum of what we're talking about today, but it, you know, fits a similar theme in that way. Um, And that also dovetails with uh, the lack of retirement and things that we've discussed on punching out in the past. Yeah. That one also murders my point because I believe the, the most famous one of those stories was from British Columbia. Well, you know, your point was about young people, not old. Yeah. Fair. That is also ridiculous. I mean, again, there is, it's going to be very hard not to be sort of weirdly culturally essentialist about the Anglosphere in this episode. And there are reasons not to be, once again, we're going to be accused of being culturally and essentialist about the Anglosphere. Yeah, I hate to do that. It's it's one of our worst traits. People writing letters into Wayo, you know, complaining about <laughs> yeah. it. This this bit that punching out has going. But no, it's it's the obsession with work as a force that gives meaning that has to be uh obeyed and worshipped and reified throughout your whole life that you are what you do and all of that. We've talked about all of this stuff before, but the thing about it is that because the bottom is falling out of what we had left of a society, you're starting to see that there's just no limits on that anymore. So, you know, if, if, if the United States could, they would literally tag babies being born for future employment immediately. I mean, it's to that point, and you would do something. I've said before on this show that capitalism is just, you know, warmed over feudalism in a lot of ways, or at least the current stage of it is. But that's really too true if you're expected to be working from as early as possible, from the moment your muscles are developed enough to, I don't know, hold an axe 
drive a truck or whatever to the moment you keel over and die. There's something really tragic about that, and this will be a theme. There's not really enough pushback going on about that. I think one of the things you've gotten to in what you've said is the idea that a lot of this is meant to be character building. It's not even, in some cases, out of a need for money. You know, there are legitimate circumstances where, you know, another income in the household is the difference between making rent and not making rent, obviously. But for a lot of well-to-do middle-class families, the idea of putting their high schooler to a shift at Subway or wherever is... I mean, yes, the high schooler may want, you know, money to pay for gas or movie tickets or what do high schoolers want? Uh, Fortnite. Yeah, V-Bucks, sure. Yeah. But a lot of it is couched in this language of character building. And from the start, it's made to be not about the paycheck, which, I mean, here I'm putting out where, you know, a broader point we've been making is that more focus should be placed on how much you're getting paid for the work you're doing, you know, because when it becomes about other things that obscures how little you're being given in return. And so that really sets the stage for many a working career in the U S you know, this is how you start out. You learn the ropes by being told it's about character building and your expectations from there are shaped. Yeah. It's so to be clear, Malik Evans is not the only as much as I think we're going to enjoy dunking on Malik Evans over the next few years. uh, He's not the only person doing this. I believe the Labor Department, I don't know if they actually went through with it, but they were looking at loosening requirements on how young you had to be before you could drive a truck uh, or other heavy machinery. From from what I'm reading, that was legislation introduced into the House of Representatives, but this article does not mention uh, which 17 members of the Congress were responsible for that bill. And I I do know that the that OSHA under Trump changed some of those requirements as well for I think farm equipment. I think a combine harvester, specifically, we talked about it on the show, and basically. There's there's loosening requirements for that. There's attempts in some states to reduce what age you have to be to hold certain jobs and whatnot. So it's it's not just doing and and the thing about it is that it's not like the companies that employ children were not already skirting existing uh-huh. child labor laws in plenty of places. On this very show, we've talked about. I know Chipotle was a big one. Yes, yes, that's the one. And I, was going I feel to like say. there's at least one other one. Yeah, uh, Ryan, if you've got that info to hand, I mean, it would be great to talk about what exactly Chipotle was doing that you know got it in the crosshairs. Headline: Chipotle was hit with the biggest child labor penalty in Massachusetts after an investigation proved the chain was violating child labor and sick time laws. Um, I, I, I've, as I recall, the fine was something in the area of uh, $2 million, uh, an estimated 13,000 child labor violations in more than 50 locations. Uh, how much did you say the fine ended up being again? I believe $2 million in that range, if I remember. No, sorry, $1.3 million. Well, with the prices everyone's complaining about, that's so, like so like two that burritos. works out to just about $1,000 per violation. Yep. 
that that by the way is something if if you ever oh no if what one hundred dollars per violation I stand corrected <laughs> we would not want another math mistake on this show yeah it's oh my god oh. If you ever want to gauge how serious a Congress is about actual labor rights, the first thing they would do is massively up fine amounts for companies because most of these have been set in stone since like the 60s or 70s or something like that because they're not percentage-based and they're meant not to be so that companies can inflate their way out of them. But the point I'm trying to make with the Chipotle thing is that it's not like companies weren't already treating their child workers like crap. Mm-hmm. And now they're just being given full legal cover to do so because, again, we live in a country that has decided that the only thing for you to do is you are born and maybe you go to school for the full length and maybe you don't, depending on what's needed in your family and whatnot and how rich they are and everything. And then you work and you work until you die. And or if you're, again, rich, then maybe one day you get to retire. And that that's what's always been weird, you know, and throughout most of history, if you were in the upper classes, it was almost considered gauche to have a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have money. Why do you need to work for a living? That's kind of the whole thing. But the U.S. has in its infinite ability to worship capitalism and the market. Uh, you have to do something. You have to have some kind of title, even if it's just you go up to your office for eight hours a day and do nothing. But you have to do something because you don't have a title like, you know, the the Duke of Long Island or whatever. So there it is. It's it it turns out that in in forbidding a titled aristocracy, we've just created a bunch of people who will never shed that like nouveau riche need to work harder than the nobles that don't exist in this country. And that ends up filtering on down to everyone else. And it's it's noxious. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've talked on previous episodes in the show of uh, how much of this labor shortage is, in fact, you know, manufactured. It is a product of companies being unwilling to raise wages to meet, uh, you know, new circumstances. Uh, mm-hmm. They very much like the old circumstances. They were pretty happy with those circumstances. And uh, when those circumstances changed, uh, some companies just can't seem to adapt. Four circumstances. Well done. I am the only person I know so far uh, who is, I mean, essential worker. That's not really a thing anymore, but who has been an essential worker throughout the pandemic and all of this. And not only am I not getting any improvement in my working conditions, I am actually losing them. Uh, because in the words of some of my bosses, my problem is that I am underworked and overpaid. Uh. So the great resignation isn't really happening where I am, okay, is what I'm trying to get across. And one of the hardening things, it it really makes me wonder what the long-term strategy is, because you've got a Democratic administration who their only executive, like, uh, weight-throwing, other than against like Russia has been to kind of move things around at the labor relations board, which at least might imply some kind of like long-term strategic thinking around strengthening unions 
And you could make a case that maybe those unions then become the channel of power for workers. But as we're seeing, every company in the United States is increasingly resistant to the idea of changing anything, of of breaking of even the most minuscule crack in the dam of American labor relations. So that what they've done is a two-pronged strategy. They're treating the workers that they have as badly as possible and only giving out raises or improvements and so on when workers collectivize or when somebody, you know, finally gets the nerve up to ask for a raise knowing how badly they're needed, which a lot of these people are tech workers and we'll get to that in the next segment. And then there's also the fact that at the same time, they are trying to expand the labor force to people who, for whatever reason, many of which are not legal or economic, but simply cultural, are going to put up with a lot more from their employer. Because that's the thing. If you get, if you're a restaurant and you're short staffed and you're taking your pick of the retired people in your community, older people tend to have a more positive view of employment and of employers. And if they're retired and not currently working and can just go volunteer at your restaurant, they're probably people who don't need to work for a living. So there's something else in there. You know, there are other elements that are making that a positive experience for them. I I feel like we've uh, rung this subject out enough for one segment. Um, When we come back from the break, Chipotle was ringing out those teenagers. Yes. Um, When when we come back from this break, we'll discuss uh, the ways in which companies have uh, turned their sights on schools to find the next generation of workers. We'll be back. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. In our first segment today, we talked a bit about the uh, ongoing quote-unquote worker shortage, uh, 72-point air quotes for that, Um, in which uh, you know companies are complaining about a lack of workers and have increasingly turned their sights to younger and younger workers, workers who are younger than currently allowed by law, in order to fill these supposed gaps with workers who won't expect higher wages than they've been getting for the past several decades. And I would like to apologize for the scattershot nature of that first segment, because, oh boy, is this one going to be the total opposite. (laughs) In this segment, we are setting our sights on one specific subject, which is the idea that companies are infiltrating American classrooms with the hopes of, uh, as I put it before our break, building the next generation of American workers. Um, that, that is exactly how they would phrase it. But um, I think the broader point that we want to get at here is the idea that, uh, you know, schools are being treated as just one step of the job training process now. And, you know, perhaps they shouldn't be. Noah, you can get into that, I guess. Wait, why can I get into that? I don't know. Maybe you'd like to tell the listeners. Right. So for all three of you who are new listening to this, I'm a teacher. It's a running gag that I take as long as possible into every episode before revealing this. 
But the deal is, you know, I teach for a fairly ritzy ditzy school. Okay. Our our student body is not the general population of students. It's not the median student body. And even we get inf- infiltrated by this kind of thought. We have administrators, we have co uh, we have teachers, we have uh students and especially parents who think that a school is a job training center. And the thing is, in the US, they're not wrong. The history of education in the U.S. for a very long time, and this is also true of many other countries, I mean, it's not unique to the United States, is one of educational tracking. And by that, I mean putting children into tracks, which that has some deeply racist uh, implications, obviously. If you look at materials from, you know, the factory schools of the 1900s, these are, you know, places where they would publicly post what different ethnicities, and I'm talking here about ethnicities of, you know, white people. So Latvians and, uh, you know, Polish people and so on, what they were supposed to be good at, what they were supposed to be fit for. And they would learn the three R's, the reading and the writing and the arithmetic, which is very funny to hear an upper-class parent or a coworker who's very proud of their job saying, you know, why isn't this what we're teaching? This was never supposed to be what, you know, our student body was, if, if anything, the move here should be, why isn't everyone else learning more than that, right? And you've got this thing where, for the longest time, you only really got the liberal arts education. You only really got anything beyond the basics if you were the child of rich parents. And then the U.S. decided that it should pay lip service to its egalitarian ideals and started putting you know, things like arts and music, into the general curriculum and started trying to spend money on kind of widening public education because the alternative was to let the Soviets beat us at that. And we couldn't have that. Then the Soviet Union fell. And ever since, uh, American education has just become completely ruled by the profit motive, which is incredibly messed up because it's a public good that is not governed by, well, for the time being, is not publicly governed by the private sector. And yet, despite that, as we're about to see here, the private sector has found every possible way of inserting itself into schools, all the way from uh, materials and support structures and things like that that are extremely expensive for basically no reason other than to line the pockets of, you know, uh, CEOs at Kaplan and Pearson and all these other places all the way to apparently now straight up developing curricular materials. Yes. Uh, an article that caught our eye in just the past week or so was uh, this one by uh, Motherboard, uh, which is Vice's tech vertical. Um, it's by Aaron Gordon and Lauren Cowrie Gurley, who both of whom are writers, I believe we've cited on this show in the past. Uh, headline, Amazon paid for a high school course. Here's what it teaches. And this is you know, effectively a business class in uh, the San Bernardino area in California that is offered explicitly by Amazon. Uh, Amazon Logistics and Business Management Pathway is described here as a, quote, first of its kind series of courses intended to help students get a head start in a career in logistics. Amazon donated $50,000 to provide the necessary materials to start the program. And, uh, 
The classrooms are adorned in Amazon slogans and the sorts of things that Amazon workplaces are adorned with. Uh, you know, customer obsession is one quote here. Uh, deliver results. Um, which bleak to begin with, but, you know, the article goes into how this class and, you know, its curriculum is pretty explicit about what it's about. You know, they talk about unions. They talk about uh, how would a boss get employees to work harder without paying them more, without offering a raise? Um, How can you improve worker satisfaction without increasing pay? This is what's being you know, fed to children in America's public schools, or at least one of America's public schools. That's a good point, because they do mention, uh, I forget his name, I think Nelson is the last name, but he mentions that business curricula, you know, are basically all pro-business. If you take a business class, you're not taking it to learn how to be a better worker in, in the in the sense that you and I would think of a better <laughs> worker, somebody with class consciousness and so on. You're in there to learn how to be a boss. Yeah, And obviously those curricula also have a very open, you know, pro-business agenda. This is the same, except it's pro-Amazon specifically. Mm-hmm. And I was particularly horrified to learn that this is happening in a community that is already full of Amazon jobs. Uh, they've got a ton of stuff in San Bernardino, Amazon does. And they're basically now making sure that it's going to be in the water. You know, this is going to become part of the cultural bedrock of that area because it's going to become part of the program that people are taking. It's going to be seen as now, mind you, it did say that the school doesn't um, what is it doesn't track how many graduates of the program then go on to work in logistics and so on. But they will eventually once they get a sufficiently big name there and then it'll be seen as a way to, you know, make your name and all of that. And then it'll all be over. Then it's going to become, you know, it's going to widen out to other schools and so on. And the fact that Amazon is allowed to do this is ridiculous, but it's been happening for a while. And that's something that I want to make sure everybody listening to this understands. These are not new. And after the pandemic, I am very tired and feeling very hoarse of shouting this But teachers have been saying this about schools for 30 to 40 years, and no one gave a damn. No one cared. Unless you worked in a school, unless you were a union teacher, unless you were somebody who was deeply involved in education, people treated these problems like they were someone else's. And now we're seeing every single one of those problems finally, just blow the damn wide open. We're seeing all of them come together to form this like terrible Voltron of non-education. And again, it just, it, it's not so much recrimination that I want here. It's just kind of an acknowledgement that had people listened to the people teaching their children just a couple times in the last 40 years, maybe things would be different now. Uh, the comparison point that comes to my mind is actually one that uh, we discussed on our last episode, which was about professional sports. Um, and I, I believe the point was made that the NFL likes to be on a good relationship with the NCAA, which governs college sports, because the NCAA is effectively free training for the NFL. 
And in this regard, public schools are increasingly free training for these companies that would otherwise have to pay to train employees, but now can have schools and school districts pay for future employees to be trained. Um, it's all just a wonderful uh, little grift that Amazon has going yep. for the low price of $50,000. You know, how many workers will they get out of this? How many weeks of training will they get out of this? Costs that otherwise would have been significantly more than $50,000. And what's amazing is that they, some people, what's amazing is that they can get school officials, curriculum developers, school administrators, and so on to push the rhetoric that makes programs like these palatable to teachers, students, and parents. And they're not even paying those people. Those people do it for free. So you've even got a class of people who, and you can always tell because they they continually refer to themselves as educators when they haven't been in a classroom in 10 years and they've written books and all this kind of stuff. And they talk about how, you know, the thing that's wrong with our schools is they don't simulate the real world enough. I remember there, we recently had an email uh, from an administrator at my school talking about how we should offer more second and third and fourth and fifth chances on things, which... I'm not necessarily against as a policy, but for different reasons. And the specific thing was because you don't get do because much like the real world, there should be do overs available, which is news to me as somebody who has repeatedly been told, uh, you know, this is your last chance, or this is the only chance you're going to get at doing this correctly. You know, you don't get to refill a job application 15 times until you get the job. Right. But in the progressive speak, of a lot of these administrators and so on, it becomes, they become cover, human cover for places like Amazon, for big corporations to insert themselves into schools and turn them into training centers. And we really have to be wary of a lot of this faux progressive rhetoric because it's not really about helping students. It's about essentially what is going to further the career of the person saying it. And as, you know, kind of a bonus, effectively continue to corporatize and privatize education. Yeah. You know, this Amazon classroom is just a very illustrative example of a broader trend of a push by tech companies to uh, you know be more involved in public education by giving out uh, grants for STEM education specifically. And, you know, this is something that these companies have a vested interest in, Yeah. Uh, the idea that you know they're doing this out of the goodness of their hearts is you know, misguided because who benefits when there are more p- people who with uh, technology skills in the workforce? It's the companies that have to pay for tech workers. Right now, those workers can demand high salaries, but if there was you know a reserve pool of you know fresh college graduates who all had these skills, those salaries would be a little less high. Um, and that, at the end of the day, is where a lot of this comes from. And it's coming from companies like Amazon, like Google, like Facebook, which uh, Zuckerberg famously overdid Newark's public schools. All of these companies have their tendrils in American education in one form or another, um, explicitly or you know less explicitly. I've, I've even seen like uh, Raytheon uh, has a s- school in an area with a lot of, uh, you know, weapons manufacturing plants. Uh, their mascot is the Jets. 
are they are they training their employees to write squeak or science fiction? No, I, so, sorry, I, I misspoke. Uh, it's Lockheed Martin, which uh, sponsored their own branded STEM focused elementary school in 2013 in Georgia. You, um, yeah, an elementary school is. Uh, oof, that's not. Oh, that is grim. That, that that's is worse grim. than I'd remembered that story. I mean, it's the return of the early robber baron culture, right? Like we're starting to see um, multiple business magnets here and in other countries. To be fair, in a lot of other countries, they don't really have to do this. But trying to bring back the company town, bringing back company schools and so on. The U.S. has never taken education, public education, seriously. They paid lip service to it, like I said, during the Cold War, because otherwise the Soviets would, you know, win in that in that regard as well. And it's pretty obvious that the moment we no longer had to compete educationally with a communist opponent, the bottom completely fell out of that. And one of the ways in which you know that, or rather one of the reasons that that has been allowed to happen is that, and this is very corny, and I realize that as I'm saying it, but the fact is that good schools would create a knowledgeable, well-informed populace that is less likely to take BS from its supposedly, you know, freely elected masters. And you're seeing in, and this is the one time I'm going to get my soapbox about this, but what you're seeing with the whole, like, uh, that bill in Oklahoma where parents can uh, find a t- get a teacher fined for contradicting their religious beliefs or, or all of these CRT bans and so on, is that people in this country, a lot of people, possibly even a majority, do not trust schools do not trust teachers to do their job correctly and don't, and don't want to. They mm-hmm. have absolutely no desire to trust anything that happens within a school building and not because there are abusive teachers and there are racist teachers and not because there are teachers that uh, you know are on a power trip and, and all that sort of thing and not because school districts don't have the problems, but simply for the crime of trying to teach your children something that you don't believe. And when and this really is a disease of the right wing, because for the most part, when lefty parents don't uh, they hear something that conflicts with their beliefs and so on, they kind of go like, eh, whatever, you know, they I, I guess they can teach that and so on, unless it's something discriminatory. But now you've got a real reaction by the right wing in this country to the idea that anything should be taught with any degree of fairness. And partly that's to break teachers unions, partly it's because once you do that, you enable these companies to get in. I wanted to point out, in fact, that the first time I heard about a tech magnate sort of taking a curricular hand, it wasn't about STEM. It was Bill Gates, I yes. almost said Bill Clinton, trying to replace <laughs> history classes in New York City with this uh, this course called either Big Questions or Big Ideas. Mm. I don't remember which one. And the big, the, whichever one it was, big whatever. Um, was the dream of a quote-unquote progressive educator or administrator because it was literally stuff like, where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we organize societies? And so it, it was perfect for this stuff because it had no facts involved. There was no attempt to contextualize any of what it was asking. It was simply this idea of exploring these large concepts that are very vague and essentially untestable. And what you get is a marriage of people who will 
people who live by the numbers, by the literal zeros and ones in the bottom line of their company with the most out there, hippy-dippy educational rhetoric. And teachers get stuck in the middle of that because they're not training students to be profit masters, but they're also wanting to have, you know, a firm curricular footing on which they can do their job and feel like they've achieved something at the end of the year. Noah, where have we heard about the intersection between, you know, extreme tech and hippy-dippy education before? Um, are you thinking of a specific example or more generally? Yes. yes. We work? Yes. Do you not remember the, the school? elementary school they had attached for... <laughs> Was it the children of workers there? It was the children of workers. And if I remember correctly, it they called it We a... Learn, right? There it is, yes. Or We Rise. Oh, God. I thought it was called We Teach. So, <laughs> no, it wasn't that. Yeah. Because mm. teaching is bad. That's, that's <laughs> what this country really believes at the end. No, it's so. There's another article uh, that I wanted to talk about here, if only because it is the only article I have ever read about educational technology that opens with a quotation by T.S. Eliot. <laughs> when, when, when they open with T.S. Eliot, it's good stuff. But this is from, um, holding my nose as I say this, the American Affairs Journal. It's called Rotten Stem. Get it? Yes, Get it? very good. Very good. How Technology Corrupts Education by Jared Woodard. I looked this guy up, by the way. He's the head of an investment committee at Bank of America. Oh, that's So uh... this is who you want to be hearing from on ed technology. But he's a philosophy graduate, and he talks in this article um, some things that I think are, are fairly iffy, but discusses, for the most part, it's a literature review of studies that have found that educational technology is an absolute waste of money. And again, the thing about that is, if you had asked a teacher any time over the past four decades, they could have told you that. When you say educational technology, what are, what are you referring We're to? We're talking, uh, this could be anything, I mean, technically speaking, like an overhead projector is educational technology, you know? We just don't treat it that way. But we're talking here about like tablets or laptop programs, uh, things where everything is typed rather than written. So all those um, Microsoft surfaces and classrooms. Yeah, and iPads and Chromebooks <laughs> and all that. And it turns out that despite, you know, the fact that teachers have been saying this for a decade, it took apparently a number of studies for people to figure out that ultimately in terms of, and you can define educational achievement in a number of different ways, but basically it's a huge waste of money and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is close the gap between low income students or lower or, or students who have, are facing other disadvantages, basically, and more technologically not capable, but capable of having the technology, if that makes any sense. People with basically, more access. Yeah. Students with more income, more technology access, all that sort of thing. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do any of the things that it claimed to do. This is exactly what happened with charter schools before, which corporations were super into, up to and including McDonald's. So this is not new. And because people in this country, the only people in this country who take education seriously are the absolute weirdos who go yell at school board meetings about masks and force their children to, you know, cry in front of school board members about why my, why don't my teachers want to see my pretty smile? Because they're the only ones who actually take public schooling seriously in a way because they're afraid of it. We have the school systems that we have. 
Uh, you know, we have school board members in this town that I live in running who self-define as victims of the school district. That That's like a thing that. that you can do. And if I remember correctly, that guy won. So there, there's a very clear disregard for the process of education. Um, there's this cultural and ideal when, when that... When say a disregard for the process of education, that has manifested in another way recently uh, with mm-hmm. like teacher shortages due to, you know, everybody getting sick with COVID during the Omicron uh, outbreak. Uh, you know, we saw in some states, like I think it was New Mexico and Oklahoma, they were bringing in National Guard members and police Ops. officers to work as substitute teachers because the idea of remote schooling was simply too much to bear which and my take on that from day one has been that for a lot of those administrators and a lot of the parents and a lot of the politicians certainly that was better because the worst person you can put in front of kids is a teacher like i i know this is this is like as near as I get to being a a full on crank, but I really do need people to understand that this is where a lot of the educational problem derives from. If in a country that treated education like something that should be available to everyone at the highest quality, in a country that treated it like it mattered, like having an educated, informed citizenry was a value to be upheld rather than training productive workers. This Amazon thing would be ridiculous on its face. Instead of being a thing that's been happening, and we basically have no way to stop it, because who's going to show up and tell the school district, I want you to voluntarily turn down $50,000? Because school districts are, you know, starved for cash in many cases, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it all feeds into each other. The defunding of public schooling in this country makes them targets for any company with the cash to splash that wants to uh, have a say in how education is done and wants to uh, do these things for their own ends rather than for any sort of uh, higher good, which as a teacher, you're told that's what your job is all about. It's all about the calling of education and the higher purpose that it all serves. But those same people might turn around and say, yeah, we've got to pump out XYZ graduates who know how to work at Apple. It's There's a real disconnect between those beliefs. And the disconnect is actively growing wider in the sense that you hear more of that rhetoric from administrators and so on, the more that, like, it, what makes me sad about this is that it reduces, it narrows the horizon. Education, at its best, is a process of taking young people and making them the best grown people that they can possibly be. That doesn't have a lot, that doesn't always have to do with what they know, but it does have something to do with what they know. Because we do live in a country where, again, maybe a a plurality of the population has a view of American history that is horrifying. And then you've got, and, and you've got all of these other inputs that fight against it. You've got the labor system that we have with its low union uh, density and its common abuses. You have the healthcare system that we have that basically pits everybody against everybody else. You have the higher education system that we have in I'll stop saying system that we have, but there are so many things in society 
that make it impossible. And we've seen this during the pandemic that make being being a person who makes well-informed decisions about themselves, about their future, about their family, about society at large, damn near impossible. <laughs> and a lot of that would be fixed by taking education seriously. And I think people are beginning to realize that because they are listening to teachers and they are seeing how bad the conditions are in a lot of these places and how completely not seriously anybody above the building level takes any of this stuff. Because that was the other thing. Before the last couple of years, oftentimes, you know, it was if if other <sighs> stakeholders in education uh, were involved with the teaching process, it was always to pit teachers against students or pit parents against teachers or whatever. And now what you're seeing is that the people in the buildings who have been at risk of catching COVID are all on one side and saying, you should have been listening to us all along. And then there's everybody who doesn't have to face that risk on the other. And that is creating a cleavage that I think is resulting in the attempt to make sure to ruin what's left of public education before there's a chance that it gets on any better footing. I know that recently in, in, in Puerto Rico, uh, teachers went on strike uh, this very week for better pay. Their pay is, I think, starting at $1,700 a month. Uh, for better working conditions, for a number of other things. And seeing my own people who I thought respected education a lot more than Americans do, and I, I think generally still do because the public support was pretty big, but seeing them parrot these arguments tells me just how much damage you can do with by ruining schools, by damaging them, by making them no longer an important part of people's lives in how they are shaped, but only in how much time they're spending in them. There's a, um, a quote that's, you know, if you're in the right circles of the internet, might be familiar to you. Um, it's from a, an advisor to Ronald Reagan back in the early 1970s. Uh, and the quote is, we're in danger of producing an educated proletariat. That's dynamite. We have to be selective on who we allow to go through higher education. Uh, and Ronald Reagan would go on as governor of California to uh, raise costs for public colleges in the state to so it would no longer be free as it was up through the 60s. A thought that's just sort of staggering to somebody who's grown up in our generation, that public colleges were free. Um, they were actually public. But it's that sort of mindset, the idea that actually too much education is a bad thing that has sort of led this right-wing push over the course of decades, starting with higher education and continuing through every grade level they can, to sort of excise from education really liberal arts and the humanities uh, at many degrees, which is part of this push for STEM education as it, you know, necessarily is going to cut in time for, you know, poetry and the things that, like you said, make people into functional adults. And and it's particularly, as Woodard notes in this article, it's not really STEM education because the liberal arts include mathematics and science. And in fact, I would argue, include them on a more conceptual level, on a more theoretical level than STEM does. I would argue that that probably gives you a better understanding of the concepts that underlie them. Uh, you know, my I, I know students who are taking physics classes right now and they can apply formulae 
But for the most part, they have no idea of the concepts undergirding any of this. My physics classes were entirely the other way around. The math, the math was often difficult, but we understood the rules that applied and why they applied. So really, it ends up just becoming technology and engineering. There's no S and there's no M. Mm-hmm. A, a very cynical view of this, and you know, you have every right to be cynical, might say that they want people who know how to build an automated drone, but do not want you asking questions about what that drone is doing. They do not want a workforce that might start asking why they're doing certain things. They do not want workers who might want more out of their jobs than drudgery. And crucially, who might know that things could be better and have Mm -hmm. been better. They don't want workers who know names like Joe Hill or, you know, Big Bill Haywood. Not that those were being taught in any depth really beforehand, right. but, you know, they don't want workers who know who Cesar Chavez was. I remember hearing about Samuel Gompers, and that's about it. Yeah, of course, because he was the most pro-business of the union leaders. But there you go. That's a perfect example, right? They don't want a, a working class and really a middle class when it comes down to it that have any idea of how active the process of immiseration has been. And again, if you say these kinds of things, you get called corny and you're laughed out of the room and people tell you that, you know, teenagers aren't interested in this stuff and blah, blah. And that's true to an extent. But unfortunately, it is also the case that a lot of schooling, when it comes down to it, has been eroded by, on the one hand, turning it into this corporatized, you know, learn to code kind of thing Mm -hmm. so that we have access to a wider labor pool. And on the other hand, the rhetoric of it has been used to say, no, no, education should be centered on the individual, not as part of a society, even though this is the one place they are going to be around other people for the longest possible time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not as part of a society, not as part of a community, but the individual. So everything should be focused on their experiences. Everything should be centered on their individual experiences. Everything should be done at an individualized pace and customized to fit their expectations which for me is nuts because then when you go out and these are the same people who will tell you that they want you to do real world education, education that makes them relevant. The phrase you often hear is you're training them for jobs that don't exist yet, which is crap. And then when they go out into the real world, they find that that's a one size fits all experience that the real world does not take that stuff into account. The real world is not customized for any of us and it should be more but they're not trained to face that possibility. And obviously some kids, kids with disabilities, kids who have experienced trauma as a result of all of the various axes of oppression in this country, they're used to navigating that already. But by making it, by making that individualization something that we put into schools, it ends up making it that much harder for people to process that when they go out into a world that has currently no place for that. Ideally, yes, everyone would proceed through education at their own pace, but that makes it really almost impossible to have anything like a classroom or like a school community when it comes down to it. There's a uh, lawsuit that's ongoing in the state of Pennsylvania, which uh, in which the plaintiffs allege that the state's uh, funding of public education is so deeply inequitable that it is 
so as to be unconstitutional and, you know, to fall short of the public or the government stated purpose for educating children. And one of the uh, responses from a lawyer defending the state in that lawsuit was to ask the question, what use would a carpenter have for biology? And then what use would someone on the McDonald's career track have for algebra one, which is just a galling thing to say out loud to make explicit the idea of uh, tracks that you mentioned, you know, has a long history in uh, our country and others. Uh, The idea that that's your defense, that that's the thing you're going to put on the record is wild. Am am I going to run a fall of the FCC if I say that lawyer is going to hell? I don't believe so. No, no, I think oh, good. That's that lawyer is going to hell. And I want to point out, by the way, and I, I think we've had somebody mention this on punching out before a very similar lawsuit succeeded in, in uh, Monroe County, I believe in, in New York or no, in New York state. I don't remember exactly where, but Rochester is owed money. The RCSD is owed money from the state for inequitable funding money. It has not received for over a decade. So you hear a lot of complaining, usually from suburban sure people who will never send their kids to an RC in these schools saying, you know, where's all that money going? And the answer is to cover and patch up all the things that the state isn't providing. And meanwhile, they're handing out, you know, East High goes to become an outpost of the U of R and little colonies so they can, you know, grab their uh, the, the students that they want to meet their diversity quotas so they can look progressive and woke while protecting sexual harassers and other, uh, you know, charter schools get founded here and there. There is no magic bullet that big city departments have not tried. They've been forced into it by the situations that they're in. Ultimately, when it comes to education, the only thing that works and people who will, and this is what's so enraging about it, the same people who will reduce teaching to a series of ways to make people into better employees are the same people telling you that what matters the most is the relationships in the classroom. Now, that's not true. What matters the most is the material conditions outside of them, the security of the students and the stability in their lives outside of school. That is the main thing. The relationships are the next main thing, but they cannot be maintained and cannot be made real. If all you are training students to do, whether by your own choice or your schools or your districts, they cannot be maintained if all you're doing is training your students to work. That is not making them people, not in this country, because workers in this country, by and large, are not considered people. Uh, And we have any number of examples to point to for proof of that last claim, unfortunately. Um, There's... Significantly more that we could have gotten to in this day's episode, but uh, you know our time is running short. Um, is is there anything that uh, we haven't touched on yet that you feel is worth mentioning, Noah? I'm, I'll leave it to you to decide because no, fair enough. Um, for this week, I'm punching out. I'm Ryan. I was Noah, and this was punching out. Find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Rayo. 
Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ario Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out, and remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.